and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. This episode is about Afrofuturism, a term most of us first heard when Marvel's film Black Panther blew up. Today, I'll be discussing Afrofuturism with Quentin Versetti Lindsay. Quentin is an award-winning multidisciplinary visual storyteller and arts educator. With a master's in art education from Concordia University, he's working to establish Afrofuturism as a tool for art pedagogy. Versetti's responsible for coining the terms Sankofanology and Rastafuturism, and is one of the founders of the Black Speculative Arts Movement, or BSAM, a global platform for artists that pushes the imagination. Recently, he co-edited the first Canadian Afrofuturism art anthology, entitled Cosmic Underground and Northside, an Incantation of Black Canadian Speculative Discourse and Inner Standings, a book that highlights works from over 100 Black Canadian artists, bringing awareness and documenting the growing contemporary art movement of Afrofuturism in Canada. And here we are with Quentin. Hi. How you doing? Not too bad, man. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so let's get right into it. How would you define Afrofuturism for our listeners? The way I personally would define it is a speculative practice of connecting the past, present, and future for the better of the world, focusing on Afrocentric um, ideologies and traditions and culture. And as sort of a follow-up, um, I'm curious, how does it, if it does, uh, stand apart from uh, black-authored science fiction in general, which has been going since at least the late 1800s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how how would, you, would you say it's, it's different, or is it a, a term for all? Yeah, I definitely think it has evolved over time, but right now, especially with a book called Afro Features on Rising by Isaiah Lavender III, definitely connects uh, older speculative and science fiction content with current. So I definitely see the umbrella of Afrofuturism now stretching further and making more connections. Um, the way I've seen it covered in some corners of mainstream media, you think Afrofuturism began with Black Panther. <laughs> like, obviously it didn't. Um, could you tell us maybe about your own uh, earliest encounter with literary work mm-hmm. you now think of as being Afrofuturist, even if maybe when you encountered it you weren't yet familiar with the term? Yeah, definitely. Um, My first reference or my first love connection would be Octavia Butler, um, Mm. Parable of the Sower. And uh, the evidence of Afrofuturism wasn't clear, you know. And Octavia Butler, in some interviews, didn't refer to herself as being an Afrofuturist and kind of didn't want to be labeled. You know, she saw it as a taboo. But then recognizing why she chose African names for her her lead protagonist and... um, and using different references to different African cultures made me realize like there was a deeper incentive of putting these symbolic things in there. Not just the name, but also like how they relate to the characters, uh, to the, to, to the protagonist's character and uh, character development and, and how she would go on throughout the series of the books. So I would say definitely Octavia Butler was my first point, yeah. Cool, yeah, that's a good read. I've read the first one and I, Unfortunately, I think she died before she finished uh, the yeah, series, Yeah, the third, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. But apparently the manuscript out there is just not oh. finished, so we don't know what's going to happen with that. 
Meanwhile, good old Wikipedia <laughs> tells me the term was coined in 1993 uh, by an American author named Mark Derry in his essay, Black to the Future, which in turn was inside an anthology called Flame Wars, The Discourse of Cyberculture, mm-hmm. very 93. Um, however, it feels fair to say there's plenty of Afrofuturist works from before 93. Uh, would you mind maybe telling our listeners about some of these earlier works and authors and what makes them noteworthy? Yeah, I definitely will shout out to uh, Samuel L. Delaney. Uh, he created a phenomenal work that wasn't considered a part of the Afrofuturism canon for a long time. It was just more speculative or science fiction. Of course, like I said, Octavia Butler. But I look more, for me, outside of Octavia Butler, my reference points was more towards the Caribbean and towards and towards African literature. Mm-hmm. So I look at uh, Ben Okri, uh, you know, The Famous Road. Um, of course, we have uh, Nalo Hopkinson. So when those books came out, they weren't quite considered to be Afrofuturism initially. But now when we look back at them, it's like, yeah, that was definitely, that was definitely in that vein, you know? So those are some of the people I think of. Um, and uh, for Mark Derry, like one of his first references was to Sun Ra, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of music as well. So then I think of uh, Shun, I think of, uh, yeah, so many different people from like outside of the American canon that were that was within the vein of Afrofuturism, but wasn't quite identified until later on. Okay, well, you mentioned music there, so I'm going to ask ahead to one of my later questions, which was uh, about how Afrofuturism isn't just prose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, short stories, comics, novels, and so on. You know, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about the world of Afrofuturism outside of the printed page? Right now, within the current stage of Afrofuturism, it's seen as an art movement, and uh, as I said, it's a practice, it's expression, and so. Before, it was just looked at as an aesthetic. Mm. And that aesthetic was able to expand from comic books to music to n- literature to also now film, you know, mm. um, but also into fashion as well, right? Um, which, if we just use Black Panther as a reference point, is what made it so widely embraced because it kind of combined all these elements of Afrofuturism being adapted from a comic book. The fashion that they used and the, the technology that they used to create the fashion itself and then the reference points all pointed back to different African cultures and traditions, and mm-hmm. and um, and some of it was invented, some of it was a merger of different things. So yeah, so all around, it's kind of like this entire movement expression that's happening from different people of thinking of how to push forward ancient traditions and ancient ways of thinking towards the future. Do you have any thoughts on what is causing both the term and the works that hit a new level of cultural awareness in recent years? It doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? So when Afrofuturism was presented forward by Mark Derry as a term, the world was crazy at that time, you know? The end of apartheid, the Rodney King beatings, like the world was, there was a lot of things happening within the, the black diaspora and the African diaspora as well. And um, civil wars were breaking out in, in all over Africa, you know, Somalia, Sierra the Sudan, Sierra Leone. So there was a lot of things that was happening culturally uh, for our people. And uh, I feel like it was a moment of wanting to tap into something where we are recognizing that we are not victims of the moment that we're in. And um, when I look back to even Sun Ra's moment in time, right, him coming out of the antebellum um, time period and the coming out of like going leading into civil rights, that was a really hard time period as well, right? Mm. Uh, Black Wall Street was just burnt down. Um, they just went through the Great Depression. It was just after World War. So Sun Ra coming out with his sound at that time period was, was tapping into something deeper, 
you know, and he speaks about that. And uh, one of the, the metaphors in his work that people often forget is that when he talks about space as a place, he's not talking about outer space. He's talking about inner space. Hmm. He's talking about a spiritual space within within our spirit, you know? So this idea that we come from the stars is like this idea that we come from a spiritual realm that is not quite easy to understand right now, right? So, and he, he speaks about this in his, in his music a lot, especially June Jordan with her poetry and his work. And so I say all that to say, right now, currently, it's not a rosy time for a lot of people who, who are of a darker skin complexion. Mm-hmm. And um, in America, you know, there's a lot of police shooting. Uh, Canada, there's a lot of there's a high incarceration rate, a lot of poverty, of course, mm-hmm. and, then, and then going back to the continent of Africa, it's it's in a lot of turmoil as well. Um, in the Caribbean, the same thing, uh, a lot of political corruption happening. So right now, I feel like people are looking for this moment of hope, mm-hmm. and looking forward to like seeing that we will exist tomorrow. And so as much as it, we're projecting ourselves into the future, it is still a very much a response to like what's happened presently and also what happened in the past. And um, trying to connect back to this this place of like spiritual continuity, of like making the world a better place, but also making our place in this world better as well. In November of 2018, um, Anetti Okorafor expressed on Twitter her frustration when mm-hmm. being referred to as an Afrofuturist, uh, when what she defines herself as uh, is an African futurist. Mm-hmm. A month prior, uh, also on Twitter, uh, she said. If we are going to use the word Afrofuturism, African writers from within Africa should be the majority when listing central examples of it. Mm -hmm. Quote, I'm saying, I don't think I care for the word. It's been an American-rooted thing from the beginning. I'm curious what your response might be to Nettie's take on the term. I will say I agree if we're just looking at Mark Derry presentation of Afrofuturism. Uh, Since then, it has evolved and um, has been expanded upon from Alondra Nelson to uh, Yotasha Womack's book, Afrofuturism, which very much centered African women as the forefront of, uh, of what Afrofuturism should be. Um, then, once again, like I said, uh, Dr. Ronaldo Anderson and Charles, Charles E. Jones with Afrofuturism 2.0 really, once again, made it really clear there is no Afrofuturism without Africa. Mm-hmm. So um, I think what... Uh, Okafor was really referring to was Mark Derry's presentation of Afrofuturism, whereas he was referring it to being uh, a response to the oppression that black Americans were experiencing. Um, okay. And so, yeah, I do agree because when I went to Kenya and like, I mean, yeah, when I, like my experience um, going to the continent and not just Kenya, but like just my experience on the continent, like the innovation that was there was astounding. And I'm like, yeah, this is definitely Afrofuturism because they very much were blending in their, the ancient traditions and pre-colonial traditions with uh, modern technology in ways that were very much useful to helping to build communities, right? Mm-hmm. So whereas I feel like here in the Western world, and I'm using, yeah. you know. There's some quotation marks going yeah. on here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in the Americas, uh, in Canada, uh, US, we're, we're kind of more in the, the aesthetic feel of Afrofuturism, where we're more, I don't want to say dancing in shiny suits, but we're kind of more in this like celebratory uh, aspect of Afrofuturism, where we're looking at it from like not functional, but more imaginative, which is important, mm-hmm. and there's a place for that. But now I feel like African futurism or folks coming from the continent looking at their futurism is more like how is this functional, 
and um, and how are we using imagination to push uh, their nation per se, you know? And so I think of like Nollywood, what's happening in Nigeria, and the explosion that's happening there, and how they're producing like so, like they have their own sustainable industry. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not I'm not surprised that there's going to be a huge movie coming out of Nigeria that relates to science fiction, which by default becomes Afrofuturism. So what would you say, uh, we're talking about culture-defining Afrofuturism, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the dominant themes mm-hmm. running through Afrofuturism? Yeah, for me, within my own practice, I focus on a term that I, I would say I coined it, called Sankofanology. And um, Isaiah Lavender uh, III, he refers to it as a loopback, and different people refer to it with different terms, but uh, Sankofanology is this idea that the past, the present, and the future is all connected, and that there is an overlap between this this time collapse. Mm. And um, within Afrofuturism, a lot of uh, artists uses this practice of uh, using the past to inform the present for the future in different ways. You know, so uh, if you look at Octavia Butler's Kindred of her like time traveling from uh, you know slavery days to the present, this time travel and that collapse of how that affected her spiritually and mentally is like a, a practice of Sankofanology. If you look at Sun Ra, where he's using Egyptology uh, outfits, you know, referring back to not not popular time period of Egypt, but more specifically comedic Egypt, that is another practice of, uh, you know, Sankofanology, because he's referring to something that's ancient before influences of, of the Europeans, and then, you know, bringing it into the future. Specifically, he was saying that he traveled to the future and then came back to the present, yeah. but he was dressed up as a as an Egyptian pharaoh. You know, think of, uh, for example, um, N.K. Jemison's work, mm. where a lot of it, even though it's it falls into fantasy, because she's using African motifs in her work, it falls within that gray area of uh, Afrofuturism. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, yeah, because you say futurism. I mean, understandably, people's minds go straight to sci-fi, but as you say, if it's got the cultural roots. Absolutely, fantasy fiction yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, and then so that's where you get Martin James, uh, his new book, Black Black, Black Red Level, Wolf. Red Wolf. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> so that book uh, definitely. Um, but the fact that he did research on African mythologies and Caribbean mythologies that came from Afro-Caribbean uh, mythologies and then created that fantasy, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, not that I, I, I don't want to open up the, the thorny gate of who gets to write what, but. Um, was his background, uh, I'm not familiar enough with the author's... Uh, uh, he's from Jamaica. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. But he feels like he did the research, so... Well, yeah, and then even the characters' names and stuff like that came yeah. straight, like, directly from, like, different continental cultures. and uh, Like, they're all cultural names that like, exist to this, like, amongst, like, ancient cultures, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm curious, what, what do you see or, or perhaps just hope for mm-hmm. uh, in the future for Afrofuturism? Where might it go from where we are now? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I personally would love to see a school dedicated to Afrofuturism because, like I said, it's an art movement, right? So, yeah, you can um, have like a whole college. Sure. Yeah, you can have a whole college. You can have a film uh, program. You can have a literature program. You can have social science program, social studies. In uh, Detroit, yeah, in Detroit, uh, Ingrid Lefleur, she, uh, she focuses on Afrofuturism and politics. Mm. So what does a, a, like a, a political Afrofuturist look like? Or like what does Afrofuturism and politics look like? Mm. So you know you can have that aspect. You know? So there's so many different aspects of the ways Afrofuturism can manifest within education um, and within the educational institution, which I think would be needed because 
I think we're hungry for innovation, and that's what an Afrofuturism is really about. It's like, yes, recycling and reusing, as I said, it's like cofinology, mm-hmm. but then also, how do you present innovation, you know? So that's one thing I see. I also see uh, more more of a canon within, within film, mm-hmm. um, because I feel like that's one of the most powerful tools right now, outside of music. And so I would love to see more of that happening. I am not aware, but that doesn't mean it's not out there, uh, of any other sort of big mainstream Afrofuturist uh, films other than Black Panther. Mm-hmm. But just because I'm not aware doesn't mean it's not out there. Are there any, speaking of film, is there, is there any movie yeah, uh, definitely. you like to draw attention to? Yeah, I definitely would say The Angel, The Last Angel of History by John um, Akufuma. And then of course, uh, Brown Girl Begins, there's Crumbs, which is technically would be the first actual African film, you know, there's Pumzi. But yeah, there's not a lot. There's not a lot mainstream, per se, that is explicitly Afrofuturism. How might you encourage people um, from other backgrounds to go outside their usual reading and get into Afrofuturism? Because like, it sucks, mm. but it's not hard to imagine uh, a lot of readers thinking, oh, well, this isn't for me. Yeah, yeah. This is a great question. I would say, I mean, it depends on the setting. You know, if it's, if it's an opportunity where I'm connect- connecting with someone on a personal level and then appealing to their specific interests. Mm. But I would say uh, if, you, if you like The Matrix look up Sophia Stewart, mm-hmm. you know, or, because pretty much every main science fiction film, book out there, there's a counterpart to it within Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. So I would say like, yeah, if you like comic books, look up Black Kirby. That's a hard question to answer, but I would say if you love science fiction and you want to uh, explore science fiction with a deeper meaning, mm-hmm. then you should look into uh, books that fall within Afrofuturism. Yeah, because it's like, ideally, if you like sci-fi, fantasy, all that stuff, you're into new worlds, well, maybe this is you know, yeah. this is a new world for you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certainly, uh, I you know, you could find some of those examples, perhaps, at the Merrill Collection. Yes. Uh, I, Quentin, have you uh, enjoyed doing research at the, the Merrill Collection? And absolutely. Absolutely. So when I was at my undergrad at OCAD University, that was my go-to place. The building itself is amazing, mm-hmm. and uh, the collection was great, really, really great. And like almost anything that I was looking for, they would either have it or they would order it for me. And that was, and it was like really quick, really prompt. And um, they have just a really strong collection, and like everyone who was is there, still there, just really knowledgeable about like different reference points um, in terms of like different content matters. So if you're looking at alien invasion, if you're looking at like dystopias, utopias, like you know they can like point you to like a hundred different authors, you know who mm. who relate to that. So definitely really appreciate the Mirror Collection for that, and the fact that it's such a it's like the only one in the country, which is. Uh, as far as I am aware, it's yeah. the only one in this hemisphere uh, yeah. that is publicly accessible that is not part of, say, a university system. Yeah, and yeah. so it really boggled my mind the fact that it wasn't, like, always ram-packed yeah. with people, like, reading into these books. Um, and that, you know, I felt like my generation and younger generation didn't know about this, like, precious gem of this place that looks like Hogwarts, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> or the Umbrella Academy, which filmed a few episodes in that building. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. Um, so how about we uh, sort of tie this off here? Uh, you've been very, very good about um, littering your questions with uh, authors and works to recommend. So, But uh, maybe we could tie this off with, you know, what are the latest works, the newest authors who you feel are underappreciated and would like to recommend? 
Yeah, John Jennings just did an adaptation of Octavia Butler's book, Parable of the Sower, so that's definitely something that people should... Like a graphic novel adaptation? Yeah, a graphic okay. novel, yeah, and it's, the graphics in that is crazy. I mean, they're so talented. Um, and Damien Duffy. Definitely, I definitely tell people to get that. After Features on Rising, which I referenced a few times, Isaiah Lavender, um, but the third, The Literary Prehistory of a Movement, definitely a, a must read and there's so many there's so many like right now it's it's a booming it's booming like a lot of people want to write science fiction yeah. and a lot of people want to really dive into this new world right mm -hmm. and so uh how long is black future month by nk jemison um is another amazing book a bunch of short stories apparently martin james is working on another book oh, okay so i'm really excited about that um and i personally have oh. another book coming out so uh, it's called Cosmic Underground Northside. And so this is a follow-up to Cosmic Underground, which was a catalog for an exhibition that I was a part of in uh, 2016, mm -hmm. um, which gave birth to the Black Speculative Arts Movement. So Cosmic Underground featured uh, 89 artists, and I was the only artist from outside of America, so I was the only international artist in the exhibit. And um, a lot of people took interest in my work, and um, at the actual presentation itself, where I got to speak, a lot of people were interested in the fact that we have black people in Canada. That was like the main thing <laughs> that Americans said. They're like, wait, it's not just Drake? Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, really? Because a lot of people thought I came from Jamaica and then moved to Canada. And I was like, no, I'm actually like second generation, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're like, what, really? And I'm like, yeah, and I got a whole crew of us, like, you know? And uh, so from that conversation, we spoke about doing a couple of events where we would get more artists involved and try to create more visibility for them. So this book features uh, 100 black Canadians from across Canada and, uh, and several, about 20 different essays from different content writers speaking about their perspective on Afrofuturism or different content that relates to Afrofuturism from a Canadian perspective. And what makes the Canadian perspective really interesting is that the big misunderstanding of Afrofuturism is that it's just for black people or just for, for people of African descent. And Canadian Afrofuturism very much emphasizes on coexistence because we recognize that we were stolen from our own indigenous land and brought to indigenous land that was stolen from them. And so we consider ourselves to be the tenants. Right, and indigenous folks, First Nation folks, to be the original caretakers of this land. And so it's like, how do we establish a future where we both are sustainable and are both in better positions in this space, you know? How do we share this land? How do we better take care of this land collectively? And so that's what kind of makes the Canadian perspective a little bit more interesting. Well, I won't say a little bit more interesting, but it makes it interesting because it's different from uh, from others, you know. Mm -hmm. Whereas like African future, African futurism, their stance in African futurism is just like how to undo the colonial process and how to really thrive in their own indigenous lands. And then in the American Afrofuturist, is more like how can we eliminate racism and kind of undo the long legacy that still exists from slavery, right? And mm -hmm. how do we get our share that we were promised type of thing? So it's very different. Caribbean futurism is, is kind of similar. And so I felt like the Canadian lens kind of really complements and really bridges the gap between the Caribbean and the continental Afrofuturism and the American influence um, because we're so multicultural. 
and when we think about multiculturalism, we often think of like just different races and different groups of people, but also within these groups of people is multi multiple cultures, right? And multiple influences, especially here in Canada, where people are from the Caribbean, people are from all over. And so uh, everyone has a different take and different, they bring their different lens experiences of what they think Afrofuturism is and their experience with it and how they see it functioning. And so it's really focusing on the functionality of Afrofuturism. So we speak on the five dimensions that was highlighted in Afrofuturism 2.0, which is aesthetics, metaphysics, applied and theoretical science, social science, and programmatic spaces. And so this all points back to BSAM. Right. Um, well, I, I think that's a fantastic answer. And you know, let's go for it. I was, I was unsure if I wanted to ask you today yeah. about Afrofuturism 2.0, to be perfectly frank. I wasn't sure I understood it well enough. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like something you are more knowledgeable about than I. Could you give our listeners a, a brief definition? Like, what is Afrofuturism 1.0 versus 2.0? Is there going to be a 3? Like, what, what is, yeah. what's going on there? Let me just start with the, the history of Black, uh, Black Speculative Arts Movement, okay. which will answer this question. Um, so the Black Speculative Arts Movement came out of our exhibition called Unveiling Visions in New York, and it was around the, the anniversary date of the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, it took place in the, the Schomburg's uh, Research Center, which was the birthplace of, Harlem, of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. So that was like a lot of history right there um, within that. And like I said, I was one of the only international artists featured in the show, and that show was curated by John Jennings and Renato Anderson. And from that show, we want, they wanted to have a larger conversation around Afrofuturism and decentralizing the definition that Mark Derry put forth. Because everyone was really conscious of how limited his definition was and that it was very much a Eurocentric perspective being projected on a black expression. Mm -hmm. um, in the sense of he was looking at it as being almost escapism, but also like a response to oppression, whereas Afrofuturism 2.0 looks at it as a response, no, sorry, it looks as looks at it as, at it as an expression despite oppression. Mm -hmm. So saying that people will be continuing to create and project towards the future even if they weren't oppressed. Right. That's so the main difference. And so we think of, and that's where the, the, the lineage then now stretches back further beyond the 60s, beyond Sun Ra, and goes even further back. So with Afrofuturism 2.0, they, for example, reference W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, The Comet, which was produced in, I think, 1913, and then his essay on double consciousness. And uh, double consciousness is this idea that you, are, you have to operate in a double consciousness within the colonial world where you're aware of your blackness, and you have to perform that, and then you're aware that you are not that. Mm. And so this double consciousness kind of is important to understand the Afrofuturism 2.0 because it's like you're aware that you are, you exist in a way that other people have projected upon you, and then you exist as, as uh, your actual self mm -hmm. amongst uh, people who understand you and who recognize you as being an individual. And so this is where Afrofuturism 2.0 really strives. It's like, you are existing outside of this vacuum that was created by racism, colonization, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's like encouraging people to dig deeper in that sense, mm -hmm. right, beyond the, the colonial um, influence. And so that's where it starts to look, like I said, the five dimensions comes in because it then encourages, us, encourages people to look at 
the metaphors within Afrofuturism and the fact that a lot of these things are not just imaginative but actually have deeper meanings and actually are codes, whether the author or the creator, content creator, intended for, for it to be or not. And so once again, aesthetics. Let's, let's just use Black Panther as an example. Aesthetics, of course, Wakanda, the outfits, the, all those things, you see it, boom, futurism. This is, not, this is not something that we see every day. The metaphysics. So the metaphysics is the fact that it's the panther god is actually in relations to actual, like, Bath and Seth and all these ancient deities that relates to uh, the panther. But once again, all these things are, uh, are rooted in actual reality, right? But then also a lot of it is rooted in veganism. So the fact that you have to eat a heart-shaped herb to get your powers, you know, so this idea of uh, being empowered by the earth. The vibranium being extracted from the earth, you know, obviously... You can talk about bauxite, you can talk about coal, you can talk about all these things that we take from the earth. Yeah. Gold, diamonds, et cetera, et cetera. The metaphysics is the fact of how it actually affects the people, right? So how these things actually affect your spirit, your well-being, all these deeper, deeper things. And then the applied and theoretical sciences now speaking about, like, yeah, how does it deal with on a, on a logical um, standpoint, like from, from a scientific standpoint? So obviously we can talk about STEAM education, right? And then... Last is uh, last tool is theoretical science. So it's like, what is the deeper uh, meaning to all these things? And then last is programmatic spaces. Mm-hmm. So if you're using Black Panther as an example, movie spoiler, if you haven't watched it, in the end of the movie, he creates these science centers. With BSAM, uh, we are trying to tap into all these things and then creating these conventions and programmatic spaces where people can learn about all these aspects of a deeper narrative within Afrofuturism from a standpoint of it being functional and not just being imaginative only. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Great answer. I, uh, you definitely, if I could, you know, turn this into a good programmatic space for our listeners. <laughs> this has been really fun and really informative. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.